Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to that passage we just read, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to... Google it, probably. I'm sure you can find it. Acts chapter 2 is where we'll be. We're going to be in a lot of different passages uh, this morning, but we'll at least start off there in that passage. Uh, Like I said earlier, if you're new, uh, welcome uh, to catch you up and just so you kind of know what we're doing during this time. Basically, we are taking some time in this series called Church Matters to talk about what we do and why we do it as the church. And, And we're focusing specifically on what we do during this time, the Sunday morning hour or two, depending on the week and who's preaching, obviously, but uh, what we do during this period of time on Sunday mornings and talk about why it matters. We've been saying kind of every week that it's really easy to show up to a setting like this uh, just because you've always done it or because it's what you grew up doing, or because you feel like it's the right thing to do, or whatever. And it's easy to just kind of go through the motions of showing up here on a Sunday morning without thinking much about why we do this, and and why the things that we do in this setting are important. But we said that over time, if we don't think much about why we do this, it's really easy to to lose sight of its importance. And and all it takes is for life to get a little bit busy or us to have some things we'd prefer to do on Sunday mornings instead. And before long, this doesn't really carry very much weight in our hearts at all. And so what we're doing in the series is taking some time to resist that tendency to forget the importance of this time by talking about specifically some of the things that we do during this time and why we do them. That's what we're doing during this teaching series. So in light of all of that, I have a question for us as we start out this morning that I want you to think on. My question is, out of all the things that we do on a Sunday morning together, when we gather together here on Sundays, what is the most central thing that we do? What's the most important out of all the things we do here on Sunday? What's the most central? What is the one thing that all the other things here on Sundays revolves around? If you had to pick one, what would it be? Is it the sermon? That seems pretty important, right? Or at least I'd like to think it's important. Maybe I'm biased on that. Is it singing? Is it giving, like we talked about last week? What is the most central thing that we do here on Sundays? It may come as a surprise to some of us, maybe a lot of us, but at least for the first 1,500 years or so of church history, the answer to that question of what is most central was very obvious. It's communion. Communion is the most central thing that we do here on Sundays, or at least for the early church it was. The the table, the bread, and the cup has historically been the most central piece of the church gathering together. 
For instance, take a look with me there in the passage that I had you turn to, Acts chapter 2. We've referenced this passage at least once or twice in the series so far. Very important passage because it's kind of the first detailed glimpse we get in the New Testament of what the early church did when they gathered together. So I want to read this passage to you yet again, and as we do, I want you to pay close attention and see if anything stands out as we read it. Acts 2, starting in verse 42, we'll go through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So there's a lot that we can glean from that passage. If you've been around City Church very long at all, you know that we circle back time and time again to this passage. We really model a lot of what we do and how we structure our church based on trying to do many of the things in this passage. But for our purposes today, I just want to point out one thing that actually comes up multiple times in that passage. In verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread Then again, in verse 46, it says they broke bread in their homes. And then in the same sentence, again, it says they ate together. Three different times, it talks about the early church eating meals together. Does anybody else find that interesting? Does anybody else like me who really enjoys eating find that encouraging and affirming (laughs) and spirit-filled even? What's further and what's important to know is that in the Greek language, the the language that the book of Acts was originally written in, if you wanted to emphasize something, if you wanted to call the reader's attention to it, you would repeat it. There's no way to bold things or underline things or highlight things. So if you wanted somebody to remember something, you repeated it. And here in Acts 2, the author repeats the idea of the early church eating together twice. He says it three times in six verses. And he does that because he wants to emphasize its importance, its centrality to the early church. Other people have noticed this emphasis too. So commenting on this exact passage in Acts chapter 2, here's early Christian historian Andrew McGowan. He says this, We lack the details of these elements, but one thing in particular is surprising relative to more recent patterns, i.e. modern patterns of worship. Christians met for meals. A distinctive meal tradition here called the breaking of the bread was not a social event additional to worship, or a programmatic attempt to create fellowship among the Christians, but it was the regular form of Christian gathering. They were not merely one sacramental part of a community or worship life, but the central act around which others, reading, preaching, prayer, and prophecy were arranged. The central piece of the early church gatherings was a meal. We also see this in places like 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is discussing the weekly meeting of the early church, and he starts off by saying, quote, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to what? Eat. When you gather to eat together. 
Not when you gather to sing, not when you gather to hear a sermon preached, not even when you gather to hang out in the lobby and drink likewise coffee, even though that's very important. And I can only imagine it greatly increases the quality of our gatherings here on Sundays. Paul doesn't emphasize any of that. Paul says, when you gather to eat. Now, it's here that you might be thinking, okay, Kent, but you said the most important part of the gathering was communion. It seems like everything you're talking about now is just about eating a meal together in general. Those are not the same thing. But here's what you need to realize. For most of the church's history, they have been the same thing. Eating a meal together was communion, and communion was eating a meal together. Now, to be sure, certain elements of the meal, like the bread and the cup, had particular significance to the early church, and they were highlighted. But still, all of that happened in the context of an actual meal, eaten at a table with other followers of Jesus. See, when you and I think of communion, what some people call the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, perhaps, chances are we think of a piece of bread or maybe a tiny little wafer or cracker and then a sip of wine. Or if you grew up Baptist, a tiny shot glass full of Welch's grape juice. Anybody else? <laughs> like the tiniest shot glass ever. And it had to be Welch's or else it wasn't like authentically Jesus's blood in that scenario, right? <laughs> I knew people that would rebel if it wasn't Welch's. Like, they could just taste it, which is bizarre to me. But that's what we tend to think of, right, when we think of communion. But here's the issue with that, of seeing it that way. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is trying to correct a misuse, an abuse of the Lord's Supper. And part of the problem he mentions is that the people in that church were getting drunk off of the communion wine, which props to us, we have a lot of problems but we've never had that particular problem at City Church. So way to go, us, I guess, uh, in that regard. But he calls out that they're getting drunk off the communion wine. So, so think about that for a second. If that's the problem occurring in the Corinthian church, either people are downing quite a few of the tiny cups of wine, or they're practicing communion much differently than we are, right? Right? And we know from history that it's actually the latter. When the early church took communion, so to speak, it was a meal that they were eating together. When the early church got together, they didn't primarily think of it as a concert or a TED talk or a religious service to observe. They primarily thought of it as a meal that they participated in. We actually find out in the New Testament book of Jude that they actually had a name for the meals that they would share together. They called them love feasts, which I'm all for using biblical terminology for things, but if it's okay with y'all, we're going to leave that one alone. Just sounds like something a little bit different when it's translated into English. So we're going to leave that one alone. But still, but still, do you hear the language? Do you hear the language that is used there? Them gathering together was a feast. It was a meal that they ate together. Not a bite of cracker and a shot of grape juice, a, a meal, a big celebratory meal eaten together with other followers of Jesus. So where am I going with all of this? Might be the question you're wondering at this point. Does this mean that we need to like 
demo the stage in this room and like get rid of the speakers and, and trim the sermon down to about 10 minutes and just build like a massive room-sized table that we could all eat at together. Honestly, I don't hate that idea. Uh, I, I wouldn't be opposed to that at all. Uh, it sounds kind of great. It, it also sounds a little bit expensive and hard to pull off logistically. In fact, that's one of the primary reasons that communion became what it is today, historically, as many churches grew under the Roman Empire. Then a lot of them were up to a few hundred or a few thousand in attendance. It, it became then very difficult, logistically difficult, to organize that many people around a singular table and afford to feed them all. That became difficult for them to do. So as much as I would love to switch it up and do things exactly the way that the early church did it, I don't know that we could feasibly pull all of that off every Sunday. But here's why I walk you through all of that history of communion in the early church. One, it's never bad to learn a little bit of church history. But two, because I think there are certain inherent dangers in the way that we practice communion here on a Sunday that I at least want us to be aware of. I don't think the way that we do communion is wrong, but I do think it can lead to, to us forgetting some things about communion that are very important. It, it can cause some sort of mental shifts to happen in us that can do real damage to the reasons that we share this meal together with other followers of Jesus. And I at least want us to be aware of some of that so that we can be on guard against it. Put another way, uh, I think when we practice communion the way that we do, it's very easy to view communion in a very flat sort of way, very one-dimensional. We, we walk to the table, we quickly think of something in our minds involving Jesus' death, maybe, and then we take the bread and the juice, we go back to our seat, and that's all there is to it. But the truth is, in the scriptures, eating this meal together has a lot more layers to it than that. There's a little more going on in communion. So, so I want to spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking some of those things that are happening in this meal that we call communion. I want to lay out for us four dimensions, so to speak, of communion from the scriptures. And the hope is that by unpacking all of these dimensions of the meal, we can start to see it with a lot more significance and importance and centrality than it would have otherwise. And, and maybe that can restore some of the centrality of communion to our life together as followers of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. So the first dimension I think we see in the scriptures about the communion meal is this. It points us backwards. It points us backwards. This is probably the aspect of communion that most of us are the most familiar with already. As Jesus ate the Last Supper, which was the very first communion, so to speak, with his disciples, Luke 22 records this. We'll put this up on the screen for you. And he, that's Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. When we as his disciples eat, Jesus wants us to think backward and remember something that happened. And while the disciples at the time did not fully understand what Jesus was alluding to in saying that, it would soon become very evident to them after this part of the story. 
Jesus was talking about his own body that would soon be torn to shreds on a Roman cross, both for them and for us. When we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, Jesus wants us to remember that moment in history when that happened to Jesus. Paul, writing about this very thing in 1 Corinthians 11, puts it like this. He says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take communion, we are remembering and apparently proclaiming Jesus' death on the cross. And not just the death itself, but what that death accomplished when it happened. Some of you may know that when Jesus gathered with his disciples to eat this meal that is recorded in Luke chapter 22, they actually wouldn't have thought of it as a brand new tradition. They would have thought of it as a very old tradition. In their mind, they were eating something called the Passover meal. It's a Jewish tradition going back hundreds and hundreds of years in the scriptures. And, and the reason that's significant is because I think understanding the Passover gives color and detail to what Jesus was communicating about the meal that he ate with his disciples in the Gospel of Luke. The Passover commemorated a time when God was enacting judgment on the nation of Egypt for their sin and injustice and oppression. But in the midst of that judgment, God told the Israelites living in Egypt that his wrath would, quote, pass over them, hence the name of the holiday. And in the same way that God's wrath passed over the Israelites and landed on the Egyptians, on the cross, God's wrath passes over us and lands on Jesus. Now, God's wrath is not an easy topic for many people to discuss, but it is a necessary one to discuss if we claim to follow Jesus. The reality is that sin makes God angry. And listen, when understood correctly that shouldn't actually bother us. If anything, it should bother us if God didn't feel that way about sin. If God could look at, at violence and exploitation and racism and sexism and objectification in our world, if he could witness all of that happening and remain indifferent towards it, that would not be a God worth worshiping at all. If God was not bothered by the brokenness of our world, there would be nothing particularly good about him. But the scriptures tell us that when God witnesses all of those things happening in our world, all of that brokenness, he is angered by it. Now, that isn't to say that God is the type to like fly off at the handle. God isn't easily angered. In fact, the scriptures teach us that he's slow to anger. Anger is not God's default posture. It's not his nature. His nature is love. He overflows with love, but true love, when it witnesses injustice and wrong, naturally becomes anger at the thing causing the wrong. This is just how true love operates. So think about it. If I told you that I loved my wife, which I do, I'm not just telling you that. I actually do love my wife. If I told you that, and, and then I just was indifferent towards anything or anyone that regularly threatened to harm my wife, I think you would rightly question whether or not I actually loved her. Because love, when it witnesses injustice and wrong, rightly becomes angry at the thing causing the wrong. This is just how true love operates. 
Now, here comes the uncomfortable part for us. Quite often, you and I are actually the ones causing the wrong. We are often the ones creating the injustice, the brokenness. We might bristle at that because we as human beings are very good at convincing ourselves that we're not all that bad. But the reality is it's true whether we want to believe it or not. We have sinned and that sin angers God. But at the cross, what we celebrate is that God in his love chose to pass over us with his wrath and allowed that wrath to fall on Jesus instead. Isaiah 53, to me, is one of the most beautiful places to see this reality unpacked. It says this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is what happened on the cross. So when we take communion as followers of Jesus, when we participate in this meal, we are celebrating a Passover of our own. We're celebrating that God's anger and wrath for our sin, though we deserved it, did not land on us, but instead landed on Jesus. And because of that, we get to experience life with God forever, starting now and continuing into eternity. And when we come to the table to eat, we're remembering that. We're calling that to everyone's attention. We're celebrating that. We're proclaiming that in Paul's words from 1 Corinthians. We are remembering Jesus' body and blood that was broken and poured out for us, for our sins. We're looking backward to what happened on the cross. That's the first dimension of communion. The second one was that we also look forward when we take communion. We look forward. So Jesus also says something really peculiar in that Luke 22 passage that we just mentioned, something that I think often gets overlooked when we read through it. So take a look at verses 14 through 18 on the screen. I'll actually put the part I want you to notice in bold so you can see it. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Then he repeats something very similar in regards to the cup, verse 17. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, notice this part, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So when we eat this meal, evidently, we don't just look backward to the cross, we also look forward. We look ahead. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus points forward to the day that, in his words, the kingdom of God comes. Now, if you're newer to Jesus or to church, I wouldn't expect you to understand all that semi-technical language in there. But real quick, here's what Jesus is referring to. Followers of Jesus have always believed that there is a day coming on the horizon when God will make all things in the world back to the way they were meant to be. 
So, so pretty much all of us, just human beings, Christian or not, we look at the world around us and we all agree that many, many things in the world are not the way that they're supposed to be. We pretty much all agree. There's not a whole lot we can agree on across humanity right now, but we can at least agree on that, right? A lot of things just aren't as they meant to be. Well, followers of Jesus have this really crazy out there belief that the reason things feel like they shouldn't be this way is because they weren't supposed to be this way. That's what Christians believe. That's why it feels that way. But we also believe that one day God is going to do something about all of that. And the Bible uses a lot of different imagery to describe the day when God returns and he does all of that. But one of the images that it uses regularly is the imagery of a meal. So look with me, for example, Isaiah 25 up on the screen. I would say sorry for all the Bible today, but I'm not sorry, so I'm not going to say that. But Isaiah 25, nonetheless. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast. A what? A feast. I like the enthusiasm with which y'all said that. It gives me a lot of assurance about y'all tracking with this idea. I like it. The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food. So no McNuggets at this particular meal. A feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. It doesn't say whether it's a red or a white, but I'm hoping for a red. Either way, it's aged wine, right? And then, just in case you doubted the quality of the food and the drink, the, the quality of the offering at this particular feast, it repeats again, the best of meats and the finest of wine. And this next part gives us the reason for the meal. So I want you to home in on this. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. So this is poetic imagery here that Isaiah is using for the curse of death. And the fact that death and mortality and brokenness that comes with it seems to have impacted everything in our world for the worst. Isaiah says that that all hangs over humanity like a shroud, like a thick cloth. But on this day in the future, Isaiah says, God will do away with all of that. It says he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. According to this passage, there will come a day for followers of Jesus when everything that haunts us in our world will be no more, where death itself will be gone. And Jesus says that when that happens, when that day comes, he will celebrate with all of us over a meal, a feast. Now, here's why that matters in regards to communion. It means that when we eat this meal, we are not just looking backwards to the day when Jesus rescued us. We're also looking forward to the day when God rescues the entire world. Life is hard. Amen? When we come in here on Sundays, at least a lot of us are very aware of that reality. We're very aware of, in Isaiah's words, the shroud, the sheet that covers all people. We come in here very aware of all the things in our world that just aren't as they should be. Very aware of the things in our hearts 
that are not as they should be. Things in our families that are not as they should be. Things in our relationships that are not as they should be. We come into this room every Sunday very aware that the version of the world we live in was not the world God intended in the beginning. But when we come to these tables to eat, we are remembering that that version of the world has an expiration date. That it won't be that way forever. And that one day, those of us who know and follow Jesus will sit at a table with him, eating the best of meats and the finest of wines. There's a day coming when Jesus makes all things back to the way they should be. And on that day, we will celebrate. We will feast. So even, even though we often call Jesus' meal with his disciples the Last Supper, in reality, that's not what it was at all. It wasn't the Last Supper, it's the next to Last Supper. The Last Supper is the one that we all eat with Jesus on the day he makes all things new. And when we eat this meal, we look forward to that meal. Third, when we eat, we also look inward. We look inward. 1 Corinthians 11, the passage about communion that we've referenced several times already, Paul says something really interesting to the Corinthian church about what they should do when they take communion. We'll put this up on the screen. He says, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So everyone ought to, notice this language, examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Before participating in communion, Paul wants each of us as followers of Jesus to examine our own hearts. He wants us to look inward for a moment. In context, Paul is actually calling out wealthy members of the Corinthian church who were going ahead and participating in the communal meal without considering or waiting for the poorer members of the church to arrive which in Paul's mind is a sin against those poorer members of the church, but it was also a sin against God. It's a radical misunderstanding of the nature of the meal itself. So Paul says, everyone ought to examine themselves before eating. In other words, we should consider whether or not our lives reflect the significance of the meal that we're about to eat. We should think to ourselves, okay, this meal is about God redeeming me out of my sin. Does my life reflect that reality? This meal is about how God's hatred of sin and its effects on his world was so intense that he gave his only son to rescue people out of it. Does my life reflect that posture towards my own sin? This meal is about how Jesus is the only true source of life and joy and healing and satisfaction and contentment and nothing else is as satisfying as him. Does my life reflect that reality? Does it echo that belief that I'm proclaiming? Before coming to the table to eat, Paul wants us to examine our lives in light of the meal that we're eating. Now, don't get this wrong. Uh, don't, don't hear what Paul is not saying. Paul is not insisting that we need to achieve some level of moral perfection in order to participate in communion. In fact, the whole point of the meal is actually that none of us are perfect and we needed Jesus' perfection in our place. 
So he can't mean that. Paul isn't demanding moral perfection in order to take communion, but he is insisting on alignment. He's insisting on alignment between our hearts and the message of Jesus. He is saying that if we are flippantly approaching the table of communion while parts of our lives and our hearts are willfully misaligned with the teaching of Jesus, something is wrong and needs to be addressed. So so as I approach the table to take the meal, if there are aspects of my life that are at odds with the meal I'm about to eat, I should first do the necessary work of confessing and repenting and seeking the Spirit's help to realign those things with the message of Jesus. And then I should participate in communion as a celebration of the fact that I am accepted fully and completely despite my sin because of Jesus' work on the cross. Communion is meant to make us look inward at our own hearts. And then finally, last one, communion should prompt us to look outward. It should prompt us to look outward This is perhaps the aspect of communion that, to be honest, I am most concerned about us forgetting as modern Americans. Just by the nature of the way we take communion, I am nervous that we would start to see it or or already see it as an isolated individual practice. I, I get out of my seat, I walk to the table by myself, I grab my individual piece of bread and juice, maybe even the pre-sealed, individually packaged ones. I say my prayer to my God and I walk back to my seat by myself. And I get that a lot of this is just by virtue of the way we have it set up, the way that we have to do it in a room this size. So, So don't feel bad, don't feel guilty if you came by yourself today and that's how you were planning on doing it. That is fine, I'm not knocking the practice, I'm just saying be careful of what it's inclining you to believe over time. Here's why, here's why I think it can become dangerous. The meal that we see disciples sharing in the scriptures was necessarily communal. It's literally in the name itself, communion, as in communing with God and with other people. Think about how Jesus ate the meal that we call communion. He sat at a table with 12 others. He took a singular loaf of bread and he broke it into pieces to distribute to each of the disciples. Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Maybe the most destructive way that we can lose the significance of this meal that we eat is to see it only ever individualistically. Meals in general were meant to be partaken in with other people, right? I know that's easy to forget in a day and age where many of us eat half of our meals in our car, like from going from one place to the next, or we eat a meal at our coffee table while Netflix is playing in the background. I know it's easy to forget, but meals historically were meant to be communal activities. Why does most any home that you'll ever buy have a dining room where there is ideally a table where multiple people sit? Eating is a communal activity. This is why we encourage our life groups here at City Church to share meals together as often as they possibly can. It's meant to push back against this individualistic mentality when it comes to eating meals. But it also reminds us of who and what we are, 
a group of people that God has saved and redeemed and rescued and then knitted together into a family. So how do we push back against this individualistic mentality when it comes to communion here on Sundays? Two quick suggestions for us. First, take communion together. Take communion together. So what if, after the teaching, each week here on Sundays, when we went to the table, we approached the table with others? I know many of y'all sit near your life groups. That's why you go crazy when the person reads scripture. You all cheer together and it like comes from that faction of the room, right? A lot of you already sit with your life group in the gathering. So what if you all just went up to the table together to take communion together? Plan beforehand or have like, you know, a secret hand signal or something that you use to acknowledge that we're all going to the table and then come to the table together. Maybe, maybe you could pray together while or after you eat. Maybe you could thank Jesus for giving you that community of people to live life alongside. Maybe you could remember together his death on the cross that makes all of that possible for you. What if we just came to the table and had groups of people taking communion together. I would love that. The, the sides of our room and the hallways of our room would be so congested, and I would love it so much. So consider taking communion together with others, life group or otherwise. I know a lot of you go to the table with your spouse and pray together as you're taking communion. That's awesome. Maybe consider making that circle even wider and including other people that you share life with in that. Number two, Consider any conflict that needs to be addressed before you take communion. Consider any conflict that needs to be addressed. If the gospel, the message of the gospel has both individual and communal implications, it would follow that the meal celebrating the gospel has both individual and communal implications, right? So in theory, when we approach the table, we shouldn't just be thinking, is everything in my life aligned with the gospel? We should also be thinking, is everything okay between me and other people? If I'm going to the table to celebrate God's full and free forgiveness of me while knowingly withholding forgiveness towards someone in my life, that's a misunderstanding of what you're doing. If I'm celebrating God's grace at the table while my heart is filled with resentment towards someone, or multiple people. That's a problem that needs to be addressed. If I'm celebrating God's wrath passing over me and landing on Jesus while allowing my wrath to land squarely on somebody else that I'm frustrated with, that's a problem. So when we come to the table, we ask not just am I okay with God, but also are my relationships okay? Are my relationships with other people in my life, specifically other followers of Jesus, are those relationships reflective of what this table is meant to communicate? And if not, we stop and do that work first. Look with me at Matthew chapter five. We'll sort of wrap up here. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, which was an ancient form of worshiping God at the time, much like the table is a form of worshiping God today. If you're offering your gift and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, if you realize that there's conflict or tension or bitterness between you and another follower of Jesus, here's what you should do. 
Leave your gift there in front of the altar. Stop everything you're doing immediately. First go and be reconciled to them, to your brother, to your sister, and then come offer your gift. Do you see the importance here to Jesus? Do you see the urgency? Jesus is saying we cannot wall off our worship of God from our love for each other. They go hand in hand. Such that God would actually prefer that if we are attempting to worship while not fully loving or forgiving or pursuing our brothers or sisters in Christ, we should press pause, we should go make that right, and then come and continue worshiping. It's that big of a deal to him. So today, as we approach the tables throughout the room, the thing that has been the central point of worship for most of the church's history, let's approach it in that same way, with that same urgency, with that same significance. Let's look backward to the cross. Let's look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Let's look inward to ensure that our lives and hearts are aligned with Jesus. And then let's look outward to ensure that everything is right between us and other followers of Jesus. That is what these tables were meant to be. That's what our lives as followers of Jesus were meant to be about, is everything that is summed up in the table where we take communion. Let me pray and then we'll come to the table to worship.